0: Uh, okay, keep your Bibles there. Open at Judges one, verse twenty-two, uh, to verse five. Uh, one word that has dominated uh, the news headlines uh, recently, of course, is the word compromised. Compromised. Uh, the allegation is that Donald Trump is vulnerable uh, to Russian blackmail or compromised because they have damaging. Information about his sexual conduct while he was in Moscow. Of course, what the critics say about that is that he is not fit uh, to be president because when he does become president, uh, he obviously betray his covenant with the American people to uphold the Constitution. Uh, Instead, he will be doing uh, President Putin's bidding, uh, so to speak the critics are quite interesting the, the, his, uh, his supporters are quite interesting at this point because what they say of course is not only that the news is fake as they put it uh, but they also say of course what could you find so damaging about Donald Trump that he's, uh, he could be blackmailed uh, we've seen everything uh, and so it seems a bit um, made up now What the story, of course, we never know the story, we never know the truth in the end, but the story is a reminder, isn't it? It reminds us that faithfulness and integrity is important in every walk of life. And yet, as human beings, uh, we are often tempted to compromise. Uh, We are tempted to bend the rules, uh, to tolerate sin, uh, usually for personal advantage, and that is actually essentially what we mean by compromise uh, here. It is compromise we're talking about today. Is about accommodating something that we know is wrong. Uh, we are currently going through the book of Judges, and it is a story of how, of course, if you remember from last week, how the people of God settled in the promised land after the death of Joshua. At the top of your Bibles, verse one, there reminds us that this is all happening after the death of Joshua. And we saw last week uh, how God's people began to take possession of the land, and how they acted with such half-hearted obedience to God's command. And this half-hearted obedience, uh, which we saw as they met those iron chariots and were they pushed back, really revealed a sort of, you know, half-hearted discipleship. They, God was with them, but they were not, you know, totally uh, with him. And this half-hearted obedience marred uh, some of those victories that they had achieved. Today we are resuming our journey uh, with the remaining tribes, uh, we'll see uh, as we go through this that this added obedience there that Judah and Simeon and Benjamin have exhibited has now given way to full compromise. And the question we're exploring this evening is this. Why does spiritual compromise matter? And how should we respond to it? Why does spiritual compri- compromise matter? And how should we respond to it? We all, as I said, need to know the answer to this because all of us in this room are capable of spiritual compromise. So let us answer that question by walking through this passage. The first point, if you like, this evening is that compromise is commonplace. We see from verse 22 there, that Judah and Simeon, uh, we saw actually before that Judah and Simeon and Benjamin have just swept the south and central parts of the promised land. We saw that last week. Now the conquest is moving north, led by the house of Joseph. Look at verse 22. The house of Joseph, that is Ephraim and Manasseh, also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. Bethel is a strategic town north of Jerusalem. And if, if they, t- they manage to take this town, it would really open up the whole northern hill country as far as the Jezreel Valley for possible occupation. So it is big deal. they got to get this right, and they're desperate to get this town. And of course, you remember the name Beth- Bethel itself means what? City of God. This is a place where Jacob had that amazing vision of the angels descending and ascending. Israel wants this, not only for its geographical importance, they also need it because, you know, this is like, if you like, the spiritual capital, so to speak. Uh, it, is, it is a desperate place with, which they need to capture. And we are told in verse 22 that the Lord was with them. God is still committed to his people, even though his people are not fully with him. He is a God of grace. And so Joseph swings immediately into action with uh, great military tactics. Look at that, verse 23 to verse 25, we are told. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. They have won an amazing battle, but they have done it with spiritual compromise. You see, when we read there, when it says that they said to the man, we will deal kindly with you, it literally means we will demonstrate covenant loyalty with you. That's what the original Hebrews said. They said, look, we're going to deal with you. We've entered into a covenant with you and we'll let you go. And of course, they keep their word. But the problem is that this is forbidden by God. Exodus 23, verse 32. Makes that clear. They were not meant to enter into any covenant relationship with any, any of the Canaanites. But we might say, hang on a minute, is this any different from what Joshua did with Rahab at Jericho? Yes, as we see next in verse 26, look at that. And and the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. This man is not Rahab. Rahab repented and stuck with the children of Israel. She became integrated to the point that she features in Jesus Christ's bloodline. This man is a die-hard Canaanite. What's happened here is that Joseph has not destroyed Luz. The city has just moved to another location. Joseph's compromise here has led to a city that now stands in the land, if you like, as a symbol of defiance against the God of Israel. They have added and debated the perpetuation of Canaanite pagan culture. That is compromise. Compromise, you see, always wears a friendly face. It seems so innocent and commonplace. Sometimes it even looks kind. It's, it, we feel we are being unkind by standing so strong over certain biblical principles. But you see, compromise, it often wears that kind face. The world calls it tolerance. You see, if the world is judging Joseph's action, the world would applaud what Joseph has done. They've been very kind to this guy. And here, they've won a great victory. But you see, in God's book, this is a tragic compromise, not only because they have disobeyed God directly, Because this decision at Bethel sows the seeds for future corruption that's coming in the land. You see, too often we find it easier to follow our common sense rather than God's leading. Especially if we're skilled at what we do. The House of Joseph are brilliant military tacticians, obviously. And they've won this important city. But I wonder where somebody perhaps could have just said to them you know, did you pause, did you pray over this before you decided to engage this man in loose? Did you read your Bibles? The more gifted we are as individuals the more we depend on ourselves rather than God. That's a tragedy of gifting. The more capable we feel, the more we rely on ourselves. Let me ask you, where in your life are you in danger of compromise because you feel so equipped that you don't regularly pray about your choices? Maybe you're so good at your work and it just never occurs to, you to even pray before you train in eating. Maybe you're so equipped at evangelism, say, or sharing the gospel with others that you don't even, it never even occurs to you to do that, to pray. Or maybe you're a mom and you're so equipped at what you do, um, you know, just generally parenting, that it never even occurs for you to even commit. First of all, it never occurs to you to check what the Bible has to say about parenting. And it has never even occurred to you to see to pray and make prayer a core part of our parent. when we feel so resourceful we are always in danger of compromise compromise is common place the other lesson we see here from Joseph is that we must take our sins seriously very often our sins appear so small I mean, it seems like such a small thing they've done here. You see, everyone prefers to go to garages that allow you to pay cash so that you don't pay VAT. It seems so small. But you're avoiding purposely tax. And of course that is a sin. Everyone lies on their CV to get a precious job does it really matter if I do that well yeah because John this morning reminded us that sin is lawlessness John Wesley said there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against God takes spiritual compromise seriously So that's the first point we see here uh, compromise is commonplace. Second thing we see here is that compromise is convenient. It's convenient. That's why we do it. Let us resume our journey in Canaan with the house of Manasseh in verse 26, 20, uh, verse 27. Look at that, verse 27 to verse 28 reads, Manasseh did not drive out, or is it Manasseh? Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshin and his villages, or Tanakh and his villages, or the inhabitants of Do and his villages, or the inhabitants of Heblem and his villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and his villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. And then we are told in verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. What's happened here is that the disease of compromise has now got worse. The people of Israel are strong, we are told in verse 28. They are strong enough to drive out the Canaanites, but they have chosen not to do it because it's not convenient for them. We can imagine the meeting they're having (laughs) among themselves. At the meeting, someone probably stands up and says, "Look, if we kill them all, who will do the work for us? Let us keep them so that we don't have to work. Another one probably stands up and says, surely it makes moral sense to keep them alive and make money from them. Killing seems so cruel. Why should we do it? And before long, everyone is in agreement. The people of Israel, God says, wipe out the land, cleanse everything out of idolatry. It's not an ethnic cleansing thing. It is to drive out idolatry in the land so that the people of God can be faithful to him. But they don't because they want to maximize their own comfort rather than follow God's orders. <coughs> Israel, as if you like, decided to join, you know, the stop the war coalition of Canaan. They they, they have had enough of the wars. They just want to be comfortable. And they've decided, you know, let's just employ them, maximize our own utility, if you like, maximize our satisfaction, make money, and, you know, these slaves, and no more fighting. We just coexist with them. And we are all just like the people of Israel. We would rather settle for less than complete victory in our lives as long as we are happy rather than obey God's radical commands. You see, we would rather avoid any conflict at work over unfair treatment of a colleague or over something we see there that's so immoral if it means a good promotion or getting along well with that boss or that colleague. We would rather turn a blind eye to sin in our churches and maintain peace at all costs because we think, you know, I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. But you see, when we do not stand up for what we believe, wherever God has placed us, we compromise what God has commanded us to do. We need to remember that point, I think. Well, I don't think I know. (laughs) Especially as a church. As we grow together, we must guard against compromise. You know, obeying God will sometimes mean church discipline. Obeying God sometimes will be like, yes, yes. We want it to grow, but no, your spirit isn't right. So we have to be very careful about how we go about things like church membership, for example. Obeying God will mean identifying you know, sin in someone's life and then you know, helping them to change and not being content with just seeing it there. You see... Standing up against compromise, of course, requires members who are willing to speak up and hold the church leadership to account appropriately. We must become uncompromising as individuals in order for the church itself to be uncompromising. See, Because once we allow personal convenience to be our controlling impulse, it only gets worse as we see with Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, and Naphtali in verse 29 to verse 33. Look what happens to them. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza, so the Canaanites lived in Giza among them. Verse 30 says, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Naho, so the Canaanites lived among them. Became subject to forced labor. Verse 31 Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Halab or Hakzib or Hel- Elba or Hafik or Hovrel. At this point, I'm probably making up my own pr- pronunciation. But we're told in verse 32 so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. The same story with Naphtali in verse thirty-three. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitant of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitant of Beth Hannah, so they lived among the Canaanites. The story is the same. The people of God are now living among Canaanites as a sort of, you know, shared spiritual, cultural coexistence. Darkness seems to have overcome light. How has it come to all of this? Because somewhere along the lines, the people of God have redefined what success looks like. You see, to the outsiders, the occupation of Canaan, you know, if you are the BBC, you go into Canaan, you're looking at what's going on, it looks like a success. The people of God used to be in Egypt. They've moved into Canaan. They have settled in, built good houses, you know, land flowing with milk and honey, and they live in peace with their neighbors. I mean, that is success. And they're generous, you know, they've got comfortable there. But to God, it's a complete disaster. Because God's definition of success for them is to wipe out the Canaanites but they have chosen comfort like the generals in the wonderful TV series, comedy, Allo, alo! they are just you know, sitting there enjoying themselves. This is a sobering lesson to all of us. It is possible to display all the marks of success as individuals and as a church and yet be failures in the eyes of God. Christian success is not necessarily the same as pleasing God. If we want to avoid spiritual decay, it is important for us to know what success to God in every area he has called us looks like. We have to ask him that. Lord, you've placed me here. What does success in this job, in this marriage, in this home looks like? let me ask you a question. What's God's definition of success in your walk with Him? What's God's definition of success in your marriage? What's God's definition of success as a daughter in a home? What's God's definition of success as a husband? What's God's definition of of success In your career where you work, how does God define success there? Have you talked to God about it? Friends, we need to be able to give clear answers to these questions because if we are not careful, we may be doing a lot of things like Israel, but we are actually failures in the eyes of God. The world may be patting us on the back. Well done. But the Lord may not be approving what we're doing. You see, the tragedy of compromise is that in the end, it does not deliver the convenience or the comfort that we desire. As the people of Dan find out. Look at verse 34. Look what happens to Dan in verse 34 to 36. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. For they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres in Argelam and in Shabim, but the land of the house of Joseph rested on them and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upwards. What's happened there simply is that Dan has found itself shackled the conquerors of Canaan have now found themselves in a virtual prison. Their boundaries now being set by the Canaanites that they can't go to. They are being pushed back. And that's the heart of compromise. Compromise always imprisons us in the end, it always costs us. And that nicely brings us to our final point this evening compromise is costly. We move on to chapter 2 there we see that God has had enough of Israel's compromise and so he now summons them for a meeting look at verse 1 of chapter 2 he says, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Boshe the angel of the Lord of course as Pastor Barry hopefully explained to us, the word angel is the same as messenger so really it's better to read this as now the messenger of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Boshem. This messenger is a representative of the God of Israel. And this messenger appeared regularly in the Old Testament. So in Joshua, in Joshua 5, uh, verse 13 to 15, we find him appearing there. In Exodus 3, uh, verse 2 to 15, again he appeared there. This appearance, as Brother Michael reminded us when he was reading, is really what is called a Christophany. This is God providing himself to his people in human form in the Old Testament. It is a non-physical appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. I like what the writer, what Jude says uh, in 1 verse 5. Jude 1, verse 5, he says this, Now I want to remind you, although you fully knew it, that Jesus, Jesus, who served a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. The Apostle Jude identifies Jesus as the angel of the Lord who led his people out of Egypt. So God here, coming back to Judges, has appeared in the person of Christ and is now addressing them. Why has God appeared? Well, to explain the cost of their compromise. Look what he does. He starts by reminding them of the agreement together they made. Verse 2, tell this, if We go there, verse 1 says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Boshem and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. God is faithful. He never breaks his word. And so he's reminding them that he has delivered what he promised. But they have broken his word with him. Why do they agree with God? Look at this 2. They agree that you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. And then God concludes, but you have not obeyed my voice. They have compromised by making illegal deals at Bethel. They have compromised by allowing the Canaanites to live among them when God said otherwise. They have not removed idolatry from the land. They have rebelled against God and they have joined the ranks of Satan to stop God's agenda in the land of Canaan. God's people have now become part of the world. And of course, God swore there's a problem here. Because you see, God swore never to break his covenant. You know, the covenant had... If they break, there are consequences. And now there's a problem. There's a covenant and they've broken it. But God loves his people at the same time. He doesn't want them to suffer the consequences of the covenant. So we have that tension we talked about in the morning being played out here. Look at verse 2 there again. What God says, what is this you have done? What God is really saying is that do you realize what you have done? Do you realize the position you have put me in? God must now punish them. And of course we saw this morning that the tension in God's heart between justice and his love is only resolved at the cross. But we are in judges now. We are, are on the other side of the cross. We are on this side of the cross. So they don't have the benefit of the cross just yet. And so God now punishes them and Israel's costly compromise means that in the future they must now live among the Canaanites. Look at verse 3. Now I say I will not drive them out before you but they shall become thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare What God is simply saying is that you've sinned, and your sin now will take its full consequence. You want sin? Okay, fine. One of the saddest scriptures, I think, is found in Hosea, which says, Ephraim has joined himself to idols. And then God says, leave him alone. God does that. Paul speaks about it in Romans. When we're sinning so much... God, in essence, allows us to suffer the consequence of our actions. Sin is always its own punishment. Proverbs, you've got there, Proverbs 5, verse 22 to 23 says this, The iniquity of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the courts of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline because of his great folly. He's led us Now as followers of Jesus this evening we can never lose our salvation. But you see when you compromise you risk losing that intimate fellowship with Jesus that keeps you steady in times of trouble. God will not compete with sin and when compromise and sin are present, he can choose to withhold his guidance and his friendship until you confess your wrongdoing. Lot compromised and ended up in Sodom. Adam compromised and almost lost his wife. David compromised with Bathsheba and did what? And lost a son. And then a divided household. Compromise is costly. So, how should we respond? Where well, we must repent genuinely. Our repentance must not be like these people here, the people of Israel. Look how they repent in verse 4 to 5 as we conclude. As soon as the angel of the Lord has spoken, he's addressed them. This is a meeting God has called, actually, as judge now. And look how they respond. As soon as the, angel, the messenger of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they call the name of that place Boshi, which means actually the place of whippers. And they sacrifice there to the Lord. Now their response on the surface seems to be genuine. They are crying. They have memorized, if you like, the place. They have been you know, set up, you know, this is where we repented. I know that day I came to Christ, this is it. You know, that, that sort of thing. And they offer all their sacrifices, if you like, Uh, to God but notice what we don't read we never read that they go home and destroy their idols we never read that they go home and all of a sudden they are asking God how do we get rid of the idolaters in the land, we never read any of that it is not a surprise therefore as we will see in two weeks time when we resume our journey in Judges that these guys have not fully repented they have cried, yes, but it is what we call crocodile tears. Not serious at all. It is tears for fearing what God will do next. And that's why they are offering these sacrifices, to pacify God. But God says what? To obey is better than what? Sacrifice. There is no deep lasting change in their hearts. It's all religion rather than faith. Friends, as we contemplate this issue of compromise, let us remember that what God wants is genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. Living a life of total obedience. And as followers of Jesus, we have every reason to come confidently before God to repent before Him of any area of our lives where we are living in compromise. Because we live on this side of covenant Christ has died and is taken the bullet for our sins. And as we saw this morning, all children of God have been saved from sin. And as Brother Fred uh, well, paraphrased, and they've also been saved from what? Sinning. We must now live for him. Let us turn away from any compromise and live totally for Christ. Amen.